Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. privilege it is to be with you together in the house this morning. My name is Gene. I'm part of the team here at Restore. This is uh, obviously, we've talked about it all morning long. This is baptism weekend. We're very excited about this. We believe that uh, times like this sort of solidify our uh, experience as a local church in that these are moments uh, much like uh, communion weekend, for example, when, whenever we serve communion, this is one of those things where we gather together in community, we gather together to say, uh, some of us are saying for the first time, I am making a commitment to follow the way of Jesus, and because of that, it's, it's my next step is this thing of baptism. This weekend is also the beginning of a series of messages around the book of Philippians, and so we're very excited to start that together this morning. Uh, we're naming this series Together for Good. We believe, um, I mean, as I, as I have uh, studied these scriptures again, I, uh, I just get a real sense that Paul is calling us together to be unified, to be together as a church. This is what we're showing to the community, to the world around us, is our uh, unity among, with diversity. And that is not an easy thing to do. If you've been part of a local church very long at all, you know that that can go south real quick. But our intent is to hear the word of God and to apply it to our lives and to be together for good as a local church. So Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, uh, basically what he's saying is stand firm, live humbly, face the opposition together, be unified and look out for the good of the other. See the good in each other. Look for the good in each other and show it. Bring it up. It is, uh, it is both a practical and helpful passage of Scripture. These four chapters in the book of Philippians. We'll be, we'll be taking one chapter each week. We don't have time to exegete each particular passage, but we're going to, uh, we're going to give it a shot. Uh, what I would tell you is that about 40 years ago, I made a decision to follow the way of Jesus. And Philippians was the book that I, this may sound strange, it's the book that I feasted on. It's where I found encouragement in the days of feeling a lot of opposition to the decision I made. It was what I needed to be able to hear the voice of God coming through Paul to say, hey, I'm with you. I see the good. Let God continue to do his work in you. It'll be finished one day when in the consummation of all things. This is what will happen. And so I found it very encouraging to go back and again be reading this first chapter, Philippians. And, but before we get into that, I just wanna, I want to uh, kind of set this up because sometimes we think of a letter like this, letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the Philippian church in Philippi as a thing that just happened. Well, there's some his history behind it. It was about 10 years prior to uh, this letter being written that 
uh, Paul was uh, sailing uh, to one island, and then he ended up getting to Philippi. And this was a, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony, and Paul landed there. And um, in the Jewish community, if you don't have at least 10 men uh, of a household to create a synagogue, you, you go and find a, um, like a body of water, or uh, you sit under the sky, and that's your synagogue, that's your temple. And so on the day of, uh, that, on the Sabbath, Paul would go, uh, he would find a synagogue, typically. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi, apparently. And so he went to where he thought people would be worshiping. And so he ended up out by a body of water, and, he, and he's there, and he begins to have this conversation with a group of women. And Lydia was one of those women. And Lydia was a follower of God, but she heard the message of Jesus from Paul, and she believed, she believed this word about Jesus from Paul. And so she and her entire household were baptized. She insisted that Paul and, his, and Silas stay with them, uh, and, and so they did. They stayed with them, and they were there for, I, I don't know how long they were there, but during that time, they were ministering, they were, they were worshiping with these believers in Philippi, and, um, and there was this incident that you might have heard of where this girl, young girl, was a slave girl, and she kept following Paul and Silas everywhere and calling out that, these men are going to introduce you to Jesus. Listen to them. These are men telling you about Jesus. Over and over, day after day after day, Scripture says that this was happening. And finally, Paul, who had this sense about him, right? He just turns and he says, he, he commands that demonic spirit to come out of this young girl. And the result of that was that she was free from this demonic uh, inhabitation that was happening for her. But the master of this young girl, this slave girl, was furious and creates such a ruckus that Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. Then they were singing in jail. Do you remember this story? Paul and Silas in the prison. They're singing at midnight. There's an earthquake that happens. The doors fling open. And the jailer who believes that they're all, the prisoners have all been released, uh, decides to end his life. But before he does, Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. Don't do what you were just planning to do. We're all here. The jailer says, what do you have that I could have? Can I have Jesus? Paul and Silas preach to the jailer and his family, and they are all baptized. This starts this church in Philippi. And now that was 10 years ago, and now we come up to this moment where Paul has written this letter to the people of Philippi. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that Paul's writing is to call them into an uncommon experience. Paul's calling them out. He's saying, you've got it going on, like you're doing so many things well. He's calling out the best in them. He's calling them to be, to be unexpectedly extraordinary. 
be people unlike the culture and society around you is, is what he's calling them to. And I wonder this morning if you have a person in your life that sees through all the muck and all the commonness and calls out the extraordinary characteristics that make up you. Do you have that person in your life that sees right past your facade and goes right to the heart of the matter and says, come on, friend, like you've got this. You've got this. He calls, that person calls out the best in you. I hope you have that person in your life. Because Paul, when he writes this letter, he's likely in a Roman prison. He is naming what is true of the people of the church at Philippi. Look, he's not looking through, um, you know, the phrase rose-colored glasses. He's not just seeing things that are, that are through that that filter of, oh, everything's great. No, he's really clear. There are some things. I mean, he's also seeing that there is jealousy and rivalry because that's a thing when humans get together. But he's calling them to more. He's reminding them of their mission, of the calling on their lives. And I I have to... It, it amazes me on, on one hand, and then I, I, I know this is my own experience as well. Like, we encourage people. We encourage each other. And at the same time, Paul writes in, uh, in Romans 7, he writes, the good I want to do is not the good I actually end up doing. I end up actually behaving in ways that I don't want to behave like, and I'm frustrated with that. But that doesn't stop him from continuing to step into calling out the good in people, That doesn't stop us. That must not stop us. Even though we all have weaknesses, we all have frailties, we all have things in our lives, we must continue to step forward and do the good that God calls us to. So let me just read from Philippians chapter one. This is how Paul writes so many of his letters. He says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. This, this whole, these all four of these chapters are very much centered on joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I have to tell you this morning that this verse of scripture is what gave me life as a new believer. Because you know how it is. I mean, even, even when, you're, uh, when you have spent a lot of time following Jesus, I've spent a lot of time following Jesus, 40 years, and I will tell you that some days it feels like it's three steps forward and about that many back. I wish it was just two steps back because then I would still be making progress, but some days it feels like I'm taking three back and I'm taking three forward and then I'm taking three back again. The encouraging thing is that there are enough days where I'm taking more than three steps forward. But isn't that the way that we end up living so many times is that we need this sort of encouragement when we have days where we aren't making progress, where it feels like we're just, maybe we're just in neutral, like we're just holding our place. 
But Paul says in, in verse six here, he says, I am certain that God, and he gives credit to God. He's not giving credit to himself. He's saying, God is the one who is going to continue the good work within you. Paul is saying, I see the, work, the good that God is doing in your life. He's affirming the evidence of, of their spiritual growth. He's affirming the evidence of their generosity, of their confidence in God. And he's reminding them, you're probably going to be working at this for the rest of your days. When we think of you know, our death, when we leave this earth, that is, or Jesus comes back and receives us, this is the, that, that is the consummation of all things. When that happens, we're done. We're done. Whatever we've done to that point is what we've done. And so he's just encouraging them, don't get weary in well-doing. He writes that to the church in Galatia as well. Don't get weary in well-doing. Stay focused. Nothing, nothing at all will prevent the successful accomplishment of God's good work in their life and in your life this morning. Moving down to verse, verses 9 and 10, he continues to encourage and he continues to call out the best in them. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. Love is that baseline. Remember a while back we did a series on, on the fruit of the Spirit. We called it fresh fruit. We concluded that without love, the other attributes of spiritual fruit just don't show up. You gotta have that baseline of love because if we say that we follow the way of Jesus but love is not overflowing in our lives, we are spiritually incomplete. If love is not visible, if love is not overflowing in our lives, we are spiritually incomplete. We just make a lot of noise. We just make a lot of noise about love. But if we're not overflowing with love, that's all it is. When you have it and it overflows more and more, it keeps growing without limits. That's the thing about love. It is unrestricted. It is plentiful. With love, we get knowledge. And with love, we get understanding. In verses, verse 10, Paul writes, for I want you to understand. So some of us uh, remember this verse as, I want you to have discernment discernment, what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. He says, then you will be able to discern what is best. Now, sometimes we don't need much discernment. It's clear something's really good or something's really bad. But it's those times where it's not quite as obvious. Sometimes it's not quite as obvious. And so we have to keep asking questions when the distinction between good and bad is not as obvious. So we have to ask questions like, is it harmful? Is it helpful? We get the answer to those kinds of questions when we see it through the filter of love. Above all, keep love at the forefront. Keep pursuing love. Get it, keep it, and get perspective. This sort of uh, like spiritual insight is, is knowledge that is uh, practical. When you get it, it's not some abstract theory. This sort of knowledge based in love is intended to be applied to your day-to-day -day life. Paul here is imploring them to live pure and blameless. 
When we live like this, when we understand that life is to be lived this way, it informs everything about how we live. Going to verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news, the gospel of Christ. I love that he is, he is like speaking to us, isn't he? One of the things that I, I'm, uh, I'm a little apprehensive about 2024, we have a, another election cycle that we will muddle our way through. I'm so optimistic about this, right? <laughs> We're gonna muddle our way through, I'm pretty sure. Paul calls us to do something about it. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. What do you think would happen in our political cycle if you and I would actually believe this? If we would actually put this to practice, I think some amazing things could happen if the church would act like they are part of heavenly citizenship instead of part of earthly citizenship. If we would stop groveling around in the dirt, we might just raise each other up to levels unprecedented. That's my hope. That's my hope. But it requires us to see through the filter of love. And, and humility. Let's be real. But what we do, what we are prone to do, I don't believe, all right, let's just begin to speak this into existence. I don't believe that we, were going, we are going to look at each other and demonize each other this election cycle. All right, so that's what I'm praying into. That's what I'm hoping for. I hope that Jesus so in, in livens, he, he lives so dramatically in us. He creates such a change in us. The Holy Spirit is so powerful in us that we will choose a different way this time. Let's not go back to same old, same old life. Our citizenship is higher. It is vastly more significant than our earthly citizenship. You and I have tried to behave ourselves, right? This is more than trying to behave ourselves. Our own effort to bring about change hasn't been all that great. When we try to change our behavior, when we try to change our heart and our mind ourselves, we will have limited success. It'll be temporary at best. Real change, real behavioral change always is preceded by a heart change. We change our heart about something. So if, our, if in fact our citizenship is in heaven, then it stands to reason that our actions here on earth will reflect this truth. Then whether I come and see you again, Paul says, or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit, one purpose, which means we're unified, fighting, that means contending together for the faith, which is the good news, the gospel. So what he's calling us to, he's saying, hey, church, band together, live in unity, don't gossip, don't backbite, remember whose you are. Remember, did your mom ever say that to you? I heard that all the time growing up. Remember whose you are. 
Remember who you are. Don't do that thing because remember who you are. Contend together. We've seen animals do this better than humans do sometimes. Animals, depending on the species, will come around the one that is injured and hurt. Humans, too many times, we're guilty of turning our back to what's going on and pretending that didn't happen back there and instead just let that person suffer on their own. We need to circle the wagons. We need to circle the wagons. We need to contend together. This contending piece suggests the need to protect and promote the message of Christ while it's at the same time, it also implies that our adversaries must be faced. And so we don't look for enemies, but when our enemy shows up, we contend with the faith and we stand firm, believing that Jesus is for us and that he is doing the battle for us. Verse 28 says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Look, Paul was dogged at every step by the Jewish uh, elite. They would cause trouble in his churches. All of those that he planted, he had trouble. Who are your enemies? Who comes against you? Is it not the enemy of your soul? Often, it is the enemy within that is our most powerful opponent. Paul goes on, he says, this will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. And in verse 29, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. See, the privileges that you and I as followers of Jesus enjoy include the ability not only to believe in Christ initially at at the moment of of, uh, our recognition that we need Jesus, we have the privilege of that moment, and we have it throughout our Christian life. The kicker is no one likes to suffer. And part of our life is also suffering for him. If we question this thing of suffering, I think we need to remember that um, the New Testament regards suffering and trials as God's means of like achieving his gracious purposes. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that in my life, if I wouldn't have suffered a few things, if I wouldn't have had experiences with, with difficult things in my life, I would not be the person I am today. If life is just smooth sailing and nothing ever shakes it up and you don't ever have your rough edges smoothed off, You got some hard roads ahead of you, I'm telling you, if life so, just be ready. Take the good, take the things that are difficult, and learn and grow. In James chapter 1, verse 2, James reminds us of this. He says, consider it nothing but joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you fall into various trials. Be assured that the testing of your faith through experience, this is an experience of testing, produces endurance, It produces endurance. It does the good work in us. It leads us to spiritual maturity and it leads us to inner peace. What I would tell you about this entire passage of Philippians chapter one is that it is calling us, it is calling us, the church, to be the uncommon element in the whole of society, in the culture within which we find ourselves. Regardless of what age we live in, today we have uh, a different problem on the surface. We have different problems, surface problems and challenges than those of our ancestors. But I'm certain of one thing, and that is that our root issues remain the same. As human beings, our root issues are the same. They are 
these things of pride, of arrogance, of hate, and animosity. These are things we don't have to work to do. These are the root issues within our human psyche. We experience those things instead of love, grace, mercy, and humility. That's why it is so imperative that we follow the way of Jesus, that we have a changed heart, that we have a changed mind. And we often suffer, not because of what others do to us, but what we do to ourselves. I don't believe we'll ever live an uncommon life until we get at the root issue of our sin. And we will never get at the root issue of our sin without the confession of sin. We say what is true. We confess our sin. I've heard it said that confession is, um, is the the lynch, it, it's the thing that keeps us, um, or that is, is the freeing moment in our lives, confession. And the church that is a confessing church is a church that doesn't have secrets. A confessing church, if we as a confessing people continue to say what is true, we will live without secrets. It, if we want to get to the root issues, we are going to confess and we are going to repent, which means we are walking one direction and when we repent, we turn and we go the other direction. We live differently. And finally, if we're going to, if we're going to uh, get at the root issues, we're going to be obedient. And that simply means that we, as we often talk about around here, we give our lives, we surrender our lives to Jesus, and to those around us. Confession, repentance, and obedience. I'm gonna ask the, the worship team to come on up as we uh, close this portion of, this, of the message and of our time. I, um, I want to draw our attention to C.S. Lewis, who paints a powerful picture of this idea, this practice of confession, repentance, and obedience. In the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he writes this. Well, actually, let me just introduce it. Eustace is a young boy in this story who has traded his innocence to a deceiver when he didn't really know what he was doing. So the deceiver deceived him, and he traded his innocence and he was forced to live in a covering of dragon skin in perpetuity. So that was the thing that happened to him in this story, is that he was covered with dragon skin. This is um, C.S. Lewis's mystical reimagining of the Genesis fig, fig leaves. Remember, Adam and Eve used fig leaves to cover up their sin. He tried to pull, Eustace tried to pull the dragon skin off of himself plenty of times, only to see it grow back again. Finally, he was exhausted enough to simply lie still. And then Eustace is approached by Aslan, the lion, who is a terrifying but gentle depiction of Jesus. So Eustace in the story is talking to his friend Edmondson 
or Edmund. And he says, then the lion said, and then he goes, but I don't know if it actually spoke. But the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. But I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate at that, at that point. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off and it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab off of a, off of a sore place? It hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, Aslan caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. There's some people going in the water today. We're going to turn into a boy again. We're going to turn into a girl again. Because they made a commitment to peel that old knobbly skin off of themselves. And let Jesus do the deep, beautiful work that only he can do. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.